0: Welcome friends this is James Corbett of corbettreport.com today is the 17th of February 2014 here across the dateline in Japan and just before we get into today's interview, I would like to preface this by saying that this is part of the ongoing podcast series which I've just launched through CorbettReport.com, The Well-Read Anarchist. And hopefully you will have seen the first uh, introductory episode of that podcast up on CorbettReport.com. For those who haven't, I'll put the link in the show notes so you can go and check that out. Basically, what we'll be doing is reading through the works of the great anarchist philosophers, uh, starting with Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. And we're going to be uh, prefacing each uh, each writer that we look at in this podcast series with a conversation about the life, work, and writing of that uh, thinker and putting that into the historical context. So as part of that first podcast, uh, the first podcast proper of The Well-Read Anarchist, which will be released this coming Wednesday, we are today talking to our interview guest, none other than Sean P. Wilbur, and I just have to read his, uh, his official bio from the Lab- Libertarian Labyrinth um, wiki. Sean Patrick Wilbur is an independent scholar, digital activist, and live sound engineer. He was born in Fortuna, California in 1963 and spent most of the first five years of his life living on United States Fish and Wildlife Service refuges in Idaho and California, blah, blah, blah. He has taught on a part-time basis at Bowling Green State University since graduating from the master's program there in American Cultural Studies in 1992, which is, I think, the best use of blah, blah, blah in a biography I have ever seen. So, Sean, Patrick, Wilbur, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Pleasure. Excellent. Well, let's let's start um uh, before we get into the subject of today's conversation Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Perhaps we can start just talking about your yourself and your own background and how you became interested in uh, in Proudhon and in the in anarchy and, and mutualism and all of the other things that you uh, that you cover in your work.
1: Well, the bio you read is about 5 6 years out of date and I'm now working mostly as a bookbinder and independent scholar, but I got interested in Proudhon, I think, in the way that most anarchists do now, sort of accidentally. Proudhon sits at the beginning of the story of anarchism, but is often about the last thing that any of us read. So I was a fairly committed anarcho-syndicalist, working as an Americanist doing 19th century literature and history. Uh, at Bowling Green State University, and most of my professional work was really on what was at that time a really hot topic, the burgeoning sociology of the Internet. (laughs) Um, And in the midst of all of that, I naturally gravitated to all the online debate sites and, and that for anarchism. And in the 90s, for us early adopters, one of the hot topics was what to do with these American individualist and mutualist anarchists like Benjamin Tucker and William Batchelder Green, which we all felt like we had to have an opinion about because they were a little out of the envelope, but almost nobody had actually read. And I went pretty badly native as a result of dipping into that conversation, and as an Americanist, found that I already knew a lot about the context for people like William Green and Josiah Warren and some of the early American anarchists. And I worked that territory for a long time until I realized that there were things that I just wasn't getting. And the reason I wasn't getting them was because they were French and untranslated. And so I had to brush off my rusty french and kind of dig my way back it's, it's been sort of decade by decade early and early earlier and earlier into the history of anarchism and was really very surprised when i got to proudhon and there was an awful lot there that none of the histories i'd read had prepared me for and it was it was really challenging and exciting and so um It it took a long time to sort of get to the point of, of then understanding his long, busy career. But once I did, I kind of felt like I'd found my way home.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. And we should, of course, at this point, point people to your, your I, th- I assume, your main blog. I'm not sure if, I, I think you have a number of different sites, but one that you seem most strongly associated with, libertarian-labyrinth.blogspot.com, where you have a list of working translations um, of a lot of different French uh, anarchist writers and Armand and Dejac and Dijon and... And Louis Michel and, and many others, including Pierre uh, Joseph Proudhon, and um, and so people can of course take a look at that. I'll put the link in the show notes for this interview so that we can uh, uh, reference that. But let's let's talk a little bit about uh, I think really something that this entire project that I'm working on brings up I- implicitly, and and this is meant as a very introductory type po- podcast for people who are really encountering anarchism or really starting to get into it uh, seriously for the first time. So I. I'm trying to uh, to avoid all of the the various uh, uh, terms that uh, that uh, that the, the the various splits and factions that have uh, have <laughs> eventuated over the past century and a half or two centuries but but I think an ex- exceptionally important thing that we should interrogate before we even begin on a discussion of someone like a you know a great foundational anarchist thinker like Pierre-Joseph Proudhon is the idea of a an anarchist canon and this is something that I know you've touched on in your own writing for example in an essay that you wrote with Jesse Cohn called what's wrong With post anarchism, in which she wrote, uh, post anarchism has as one of its core narratives a drastically reduced notion of what anarchism is and has been. To class the classical anarchist tradition treated by Andrew M. Koch, Todd May, Saul Newman, and Lewis Call, usually restricted to a limited number of great thinkers—Godwin, Proudhon, Bakunin, and Kropotkin—is reductive at best. As the late John Moore noted in his review of the political philosophy of post structuralist anarchism, post anarchists omit any mention of second wave or contemporary anarchism. Reducing a living tradition to a dead historical phenomenon called classical anarchism. So I suppose, as perhaps a way of introducing and really launching this podcast in general, perhaps we should question the uh, the usefulness of a podcast like this in the first place. Um, let's talk about that that problematic uh, of the anarchist classic uh, classical tradition, the canon, and and where where you you stand in terms of uh, Perdon and his own relation to that.
1: Well. You know, we can we can dodge some of the problems by saying that canons are very useful things if you know what you're using them for. And so, what what classical anarchism was at at that moment when Jesse and I were writing, in particular. And there's a a complicated debate about all that that's pretty live right now, uh, but. That canon was not necessarily books that, you know, like the Harvard classics, everyone was supposed to read, but really bits and pieces of books that justified the present development of, of anarchism, that place uh, the, the dominant forms of anarchist communism, but, or keep them (laughs) at the center in the mainstream. Um, And how best to say it, Um, they're the pieces of a fairly neat story about the development of anarchism from roots before 1840 to 1840 when Proudhon says, I am an anarchist through Bakunin and collectivism and then Kropotkin and Communism and then various other developments up to where we are now. Uh, My experience as a historian is that everything is orders of magnitude messier than that, and that most of the really interesting stuff hasn't made that story. Uh, But when I was saying it was necessary to dig back to Proudhon, you know, every step you take off that kind of well-traveled canonical path um, requires a little more digging than the step before.
0: Well that, that is a good response and it brings to my mind the idea of a differentiation between uh, a sort of his his history as the construction and the the examination of of historical uh, phenomenon that were happening in their given context versus the construction of a canon which is kind of ex post facto and and we look backwards and try to construct our present reality from the past so there's there's almost like two different things that are going on there and I certainly hope that what I'm going to be attempting to do in this podcast will at least challenge some of the uh, the ideas of, of a canon as some sort of stagnant uh, thing that, that exists in, in objective reality that we can all look at and shines from the heavens like yeah. some kind of Oxford reader or something. But at any rate, we'll uh, we'll come to that, cross that bridge when we come to that. But let's talk a little bit more about Proudhon in particular now. And and again, let's assume that we're encountering listeners who have never heard of Proudhon before. Let's just talk a little bit about his biography, where he came from, and uh, also, of of course, is the the ideological context in which he was growing up in early nineteenth century France.
1: Sure, he was he was born in eighteen oh nine in Besancon, a part of France that has prided itself on producing independent thinkers, um, a number of Proudhon's ideological challengers also came from Ben and some of the people that he, he challenged as he came up and there is in in Proudhon a certain amount of pride in coming from you know this place that produces independent thought. Um, the his his active career, he was he was born the son of an apprentice brewer. Um, He was studious and bright enough to win a couple of scholarships, and in fact, his writing career really begins with a couple of prize essays that he wrote, uh, one on the celebration of Sunday and whether or not it was good for the workers, and then one on... The Institution of Property, which became ultimately his most famous book. But he was writing and entering the printer's trade at a time in the late 30s, 1830s, where after the French Revolution and after Napoleon's empire, France had settled back into a constitutional monarchy, and... What would become, I think, what we now know as radical socialism was bubbling up in various areas as kind of the defense of the working classes by social science. <clears throat> so there are what Engels referred to as the utopian socialists, Charles Fourier, who dreamed up these beautiful and strange visions of a future in which our senses would all become enormously amplified, and the seas would turn to lemonade, and we would fight out the world wars with worldwide contests for who could make the best little meat pies, and things like that, (laughs) alongside Sansimon, who really thought that the engineers would eventually rule the world, which didn't prevent him from also developing a secular religion that sent his followers off on a quest around the world for a female messiah, it's a a period where there are a lot of remarkable and kind of remarkably mixed ideas loose in the world. And they do have that utopian character in that they're well outside the envelope of what we think of as politics now, and often came down to what now I think we would take to be a kind of pseudoscientific belief that if you just found the right model, you could fix everything. Now, Proudhon thought of himself as in a scientific tradition, this budding social scientific tradition, and he had printed books for Fourier and had immersed himself as much as his in life allowed and the thought that was burgeoning up around him, Um, but he was also a, a, a bit removed from the culture of Paris and probably not entirely ready to be the guy who everybody would frighten with the stories of a man who had said, property is theft, which was probably the most famous thing he ever said. Um, And I'm not sure that for a lot of people, his position as something of an outsider in the world of Paris was anything he ever lived down. Uh, There are regional as well as class issues involved in a lot of the ways that uh, Proudhon's work was, was responded to. Uh, as he was coming into his own course, the constitutional monarchy was on its way to an end in 1848 as part of the wave of revolutionary activity in Europe Uh, The constitutional monarchy came down, and uh, there was an attempt to establish a a revolutionary popular government in which ultimately Proudhon was enlisted in as a candidate. And he served briefly in the constituent assembly until he uh, offended Louis Napoleon's nephew enough to get thrown into prison, and of course, by 1851, 1852, the Republic had ended with a coup d'etat, and Louis Napoleon had established himself as an emperor, and Proudhon found himself out of prison, but on the run in exile, and was in and out of France until his death in 1865, so his, his active career stretches from about 1839 to very early in 1865. The socialist movement is growing up around him, and of course the anarchist current that he's largely responsible for getting started is part of that. But the, the modern socialist movement that we know really begins just after Proudhon's death with the first international and Bakunin and Karl Marx and all that. Um, And he just missed that. So it's fairly easy, it has been fairly easy, to relegate him to a kind of prehistory of modern radical politics. And uh, the difference of a few years has really made a, really makes a substantial difference in the ideas of the persons involved.
0: Hmm. He had the great misfortune of being born into the wrong time according to the history books anyway but uh, but you, you raise a, a number of important points there of course one of them being that if Proudhon is known in the popular imagination for anything at all it is for the phrase property is theft and perhaps the other contribution if there are any two contributions for which he's known the other one might be just the idea of of being an anarchist as uh, Bakunin pointed out Proudhon was the first person to refer to himself as an anarchist so let's talk a little bit about uh, Proudhon's conception of anarchism. What is anarchy according to Proudhon?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, I had a kind of funny epiphany in the last year, where I went back and double-checked some translations of the works, the few works that have been available in English, because I was trying to uh, to nail down really precisely for myself what Proudhon had in fact said about anarchy and what he what he said about anarchism the political anarchism the kind of positive anarchism that he was promoting was that it was self-government that it was rule by reason alone that it was the opposite of governmentalism and he defined governmentalism as external constitution. Now, all that really means is that if there are two people attempting to govern themselves, the tools that are available to them if they are anarchists are and what they bring within themselves without any sort of external standard any a priori governmental system, um, you know. There's just this encounter between two people who are considered equal before one another because we don't have a government and we don't have any of the things that make government, which would establish any, you know, political difference between them.
0: Well, One of the, one of the interesting biolog- uh, biographical details, which you pointed out uh, earlier, that I think goes um, or at least brings that, that, that concept into question for a lot of people who are just glancing at his biography is the fact that he was, in fact, deeply involved in French politics. And as you pointed out, a member of the, uh, the National Assembly there for a brief time. Um, let's talk about that, that, uh, Proudhon's relation to politics itself and the fact that he did not eschew them um, entirely in, in his life, if not in his work.
1: Well, one of the interesting things about going back to the beginnings of any political ideology is that we build the rules as we go along. So for Proudhon there couldn't be all the rules and litmus tests and all the things that you know I I adopted anarchism when it was 150 years old and nothing is easier in the world than to Learn what's right and what's wrong about being an anarchist because other people who claim the, te- the label will tell you quite quickly. Now more than ever, but when you're when you're the first guy, do anarchists necessarily abstain from electoral activity? Well, there's nobody to say yes or no. You just have to work out what's consistent. Um, ultimately. Proudhon was one of the people who first laid down that anarchists shouldn't engage in electoral politics rule um, but part of the reason he did was because he did what he thought was the best thing to do he got involved in what was a a revolutionary experiment um, when you When you look at France in 1848 and you see the things that were proposed to that government, you know, it's obviously not business as usual. Uh, All sorts of wild and wonderful and crazy and horrifying things were on the table. uh, And that sort of thing couldn't really last for very long and Proudhon's falling afoul of Louis Napoleon and his imprisonment was one of the clear signs that, you know, it, it wasn't going to last for any length of time. But really, Proudhon was kind of fighting a rearguard action by the time he accepted the candidacy. The, the, what we call the Revolution of 1848 happened in April. And then there were not much after that, what are known as the June days, where The masses of the people, or significant portions of them, felt like maybe the doors were all sliding shut for them again. And they came out into the streets, and the provisional government, well, it gunned them down there sometimes. Uh, it, It repressed the June uprisings, and Proudhon was horrified. And I think. A little uncertain about, you know, what what the other alternatives could have been. It certainly raised the stakes dramatically for him. And then, of course, prison raised the stakes, and exile raised the stakes. Um, he was a pretty bad politician. He really wanted to focus on on ideas. He really wanted to take immediate action for you know, what San Simón had called the poorest and most numerous class. Um, He said the things that one ought to say to power that don't keep you in politics very long. Um, I don't think even by our standards he had much to apologize for for his very brief stint (laughs) in in the government. Yes, maybe I maybe anarchists
0: in general don't make good politicians and uh yeah, <laughs> we should well, expect so. <laughs> Well, um, you, of course, raise the specter of, of his most famous pronouncement property is theft. But unfortunately, like so many other slogans, this one has been, I think, greatly dumbed down and done a disservice by being taken as more of a slogan than part of a, a, a an idi- greater ideology that he developed in, in great detail in his works. So let's, for, for a public that has been dumbed down to the point where we only think in, in very, very slender uh, categorical figures, uh, capitalism, socialism, anarchism, let's explore some of the ideas and possibilities that, uh, that Proudhon opened up and which we still, to a certain extent, uh, deal with in, in different traditions, such as mutualism. For listeners out there who don't know what mutualism even is, let's talk a little bit about that and how it develops from Proudhon's writing.
1: Well, shall we talk about property as theft first? Because it, it's one of the things that Proudhon, he, he, he made the phrase, it was supposed to be scandalous, and it was. And he became one of the great political, you know, monsters hiding under the bed for his era. But it was also quite serious. Um, people encounter the phrase and think, "Well, how can you have theft if you don't have property?" and things like that. As if Prudon hadn't thought of it. And you know, if you run across somebody who's written a long book that they've built around a scandalous phrase. You might give them the benefit of the doubt, at least for a while, that they knew what they were doing. What what Proudhon meant was that when he looked at all of the fancy theories that had been built up to defend the status quo, the concentration of property in a few hands, and when he looked at what the people who advocated those theories, said property was supposed to do, Uh, the actual result of their theories seemed to be exactly the opposite of what they said property should do. So, you know, property should be good for everybody. Well, it isn't good for almost anybody. (laughs) Property should allow people to hold on to the fruits of their labor. Well, it doesn't allow much of anybody to hold on to their the fruits of their labor, is property like what you say property is? No, property is more like the opposite of it. Property is more like theft. And that's it's actually kind of fairly straightforward in the beginnings of the book what he's doing with his little rhetorical scandal. Uh, Of course, he didn't end there, and he spent most of the rest of his life wrestling with what the step beyond recognizing the uh the difficulties with the present system was we can we kind of split up his career from say 1839 to 1852 1853 he called that his critical period and then from say 1853 to his death 1865 was what he called a constructive period. Now there's plenty of overlap. He was a complicated thinker and he did some constructing and some criticizing at every period, but there is a a predominance of one approach or the other. So property as theft was the criticism and the critique of external constitution in government or in property was the criticism. and Than the positive anarchy, and in the process of that, a kind of reconceptualization of how property might actually live up to its promises was part of that later period. And that's, that's a controversial period, because we've become less and less interested in letting property live up to its promises as anarchism has become increasingly communist in its emphasis. Um, The positive aspect is what we call mutualism. It was an attempt at a... at least the toolkit for a social system without falling into the traps of imagining that if we could just find how many passions there were and combine them in the right combinations like Fourier had, or if we imagined that we could just correctly identify the interests of the various classes and sort them out somehow. And Proudhon wasn't interested in an ism that depended on you know, anything that you could go and patent. Um, And I think an awful lot of political thought does kind of fall into that patent office utopia problem. Uh, He instead focused really on what I would called earlier an encounter where we have people meeting without government and they have to work things out. And if the principle by which they work things out is not a governmental principle, what is it? And his answer was that it was the mutual principle, the principle of reciprocity, something like a very demanding version of the Golden Rule, um, but not laid down as, as an a priori rule, but just sort of presented as the only thing really left to us when we no longer have government to, to lead on. You know, you and I encounter one another, and since we don't have any means of regulating ourselves, one another, our relationship in a priori manner, then we kind of have to come to terms, and, and that's, that's mutuality.
0: Well, one of the interesting parts that that this raises is having this conversation in English between two anglophones is that of course not all of uh, Proudhon's work have been widely translated into English and of course that does create certain problems in terms of the perspective that English speakers might have about Proudhon's philosophy versus people, for example, yeah. French speakers who actually are familiar with it. And I understand you are engaged in translations of uh, Proudhon's work uh, yourself. And again, we will link to that in the show notes for this interview so people can go and read through your working translations. But let's talk about that and how that shapes the, the English language uh, understanding and perception of Proudhon. No.
1: well you know it, it's always what, what's accessible to us as history and what's accessible to us in terms of our political ideological choices is going to be limited by what's available in our language and it, it really was remarkable to me i think as i said I was working as an Americanist, and suddenly I realized that what I needed to know about English speakers like us was stuff that was in French. And, of course, with Proudhon, there are more than 50 volumes of published works by Proudhon. And in terms of the the volumes that have been published in English by any press larger than my own little operation, there are... Well, there's one, actually. There's What is Property? And the, the second memoir on property that followed it, it was published in the 19th century. We have one of the two volumes of The System of Economic Contradictions. Um, and we have parts of two other works The Principle of Federation, and a a book he wrote aimed at Louis Napoleon right after the coup d'etat. And then there have been bits and pieces, short essays, until very recently when AK Press published a a nice collection um, mostly of shorter material and excerpts. And then I've... Translated now um, three book-length works on my own, but that still leaves you know, really the vast majority of the works inaccessible, and lots and lots of work to uh, to bring the best of the stuff. There's a six-volume work called Justice in the Revolution and in the Church, and a two-volume work that was actually the called War and Peace. It was the book that Tolstoy took his title from. Uh, and those, you know, if they were available now, the world would be a different place in terms of the conversation we're having. Uh, but that's that's not the case. And Proudhon isn't always easy to translate. So that, you know, it might be another 10 years before even kind of the the next big dent was made in making that literature available to English speakers. So, being one of the people doing groundbreaking, trail-breaking research on this, uh, you know, you've mentioned several times that I call my translations working translations, and I've had to do that because, in a sense, there isn't the time right now to always go back and cross every T and dot every I. It's it's a, a sort of frustrating process of trying to get the important stuff clear and uh, get as much done as possible. I've set myself a, a million word translation goal for this year on not just Proudhon but on several other projects. Uh, and it still just feels like I'm I'm hardly making a dent on what it would be wonderful to have in people's hands. Uh-huh.
0: Right. Well, I'm sure there is absolutely no lack of work for you to do on this, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure it does keep you qu- quite busy. And uh, I, for one, am very much looking forward to uh, to e- new translations and things in English, because my French is certainly not uh, adequate to the task of, of really parsing um, deep f- uh, philosophical work. So I, for one, am extremely appreciative of that work. Um But perhaps, I mean, we've talked uh, quite a bit around Proudhon in his life and his career, but perhaps we should talk about the effect that he's had. And one thing that I think we should address, certainly in this conversation, uh, are the controversies and critics um, of Proudhon and his work. And of course, those who uh, point to um, racist, sexist, uh, anti-Semitic type material in his work and uh, the fact that uh, some people blame him for being part of a uh, proto-fascistic movement or, or at least part of the fascistic tradition and these types of criticisms. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that and uh, and where they fall in terms of the, the perception of Proudhon in our own day and age.
1: Sure. Um, Proudhon was wrong uh, in some very, very serious ways on a, a fairly small number of possibly predictable questions. Um, There's no, you know, there's no point in attempting to, to apologize for these things. They just have assumed perhaps a greater importance than, uh, than they might. Let me, let me sort of run through the usual criticism and, and, how I understand them. I think the, the most obvious misunderstanding is the Proudhon as glorifier of war and potential proto-fascist. He did write this really challenging two-volume book called War and Peace, in which he talked a lot about how war has, in many occasions, brought out the best in people in the past. And he, was, and he was the sort of progressive thinker who could look at less than ideal arrangements in the present or in the past and say, well, there's a germ here, something we can latch onto that suggests that we might do better. And War and Peace is this really ambitious attempt to show that the history of war really shows that we don't want to fight anymore and that by, in a sense, perfecting the way that we deal with conflict, that we could have all of the you know, character-building stuff that has come out of the destructive conflicts we've had without killing each other, you know, without the bad stuff. Now, there were, in fact, people kind of at the beginnings of fascism who latched on to bits and pieces of Proudhon um, and incorporated it into uh, some pretty awful ideologies as they did with Nietzsche, as they did with Stirner um, and and quite a few others. Um, I think there are there are two lessons to take away from that appropriation. One is that all sorts of things can be appropriated, and it's hard to blame people for what other people do with their thought. The other, which is a little more complicated, is that sometimes when we take on big, complicated, deeply nuanced Projects like this analysis of war um, we leave opportunities for you know our ideological opponents to to run with something we've done and I think you know we have to we have to be careful about that we also have to be careful about where we run with these things. good intentions are never quite good enough uh, so I think the is proto-fascist thing is pretty thin. So, Putin is anti-Semite. There are two or three really, really horrible things in his private notebooks. And there's bits here and there in the published writings that suggest a kind of garden variety, you know, inability to separate sometimes ethnic or religious Jews from bankers and bankers were a problem and was dead set against them. And, you know, I I think there, there are some problems there. That's, that's a much tougher question to work out because it's hard to weigh uh, the 50 volumes where there isn't a people, that kind of stuff with the, sheer horribleness of the two paragraphs that we do have. And you know, I I think people just have to kind of kind of figure out for themselves how to weight that stuff. The place that I, I think there isn't much question is that Proudhon was a a conservative when it came to, to family structures. Um, he was a an anti feminist. He in the process of rationalizing his anti-feminism, wrote some pretty rotten books. But he's, in all that stuff, he's really torn himself. You'll read his Catechism of Marriage, where he's trying to show how heteronormative family relations between married couples are in fact the basis of justice in society. And, you know, there's some good stuff there. He's got a social basis of society when he's talking about justice. He thinks that women and men are equal. Uh, Some of it would be really forward thinking if, the way that he understood the specific differences, the gender differences, wasn't so damn backward. And, and it really is. And it's, you know, I had to hold my nose and wade through all the details of that stuff to, to sort of figure out even what's going on, because there's there seems to be so much confusion. And I, I think, you know, that's personal confusion. I think he really didn't understand that when he was confronted by really bright and capable women around him, the fact that he didn't understand just became harder and harder for him to deal with, and you know, he, he really was a reactionary in, in that regard. But the underlying theories, um, if we're not as dumb as Proudhon was about the differences between men and women, it's it's really interesting because the underlying theories ought to leave us free to to pursue, you know, a a socially based justice that could be as non traditional in the family as you'd like. I mean you could get to queer theory that way if you didn't have Proudhon's prejudices. Uh, but it you know, it takes holding your nose and wading through Proudhon's prejudices to do it. I have found it worth it, but, I mean, it's an awful lot to ask of a lot of people because, you know, it's it's just unpleasant reading at a certain level. Uh, I, I don't think, ultimately, the really bad stuff even makes a dent in what's really good about Proudhon's writing. And I think... Once we get past the point of feeling that you know he was in some ways a pretty rotten dude, I think that the mistakes he made might even be good at preventing us from making some. Um, you know, if we're willing to do the work to to just to understand what's at stake.
0: Well, that's an interesting concept in itself. I mean, the the mistakes of former thinkers being a way for us to avoid those same mistakes and thus being instructive in a way, which is an interesting way to look at it. And it strikes me that, again, this comes back to the issue of the construction of the canon, because... If uh, if there is something that uh, that doesn't pass the smell test in the writing of a, 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 a of a foundational thinker, well then you can throw them out of the canon on the basis of that. If you trump it up into an issue, or you can overlook it and keep them in that canon, so that Newton is never questioned about his uh, his quest to turn uh, m- base metals into gold or any of his other craziness that uh, that he believed in, because well you know gravity works and <laughs> he came up with some pretty good equations for that. So uh, so it is interesting how there's even politics with regards to that but um, but let's let's turn then to the to the issue of of those people who would um, who would be most engaged with Proudhon and his legacy the the anarchist community generally and um, and i suppose that there would be at least two camps um, the first being as as you i think indicated the the sort of collectivist anarchist tradition that might see Proudhon as some sort of Precursor, or some, 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 someone sort of on the fringes of that canon, someone maybe not even to be taken seriously, and then I suppose there are the people who do take Proudhon seriously and still do um, include him as a, as a car, core part of the anarchist tradition. I suppose let's let's talk a little bit about that and and who these groups are and and why they perceive him in different ways.
1: Well, you know, there's in the English speaking world there's a basic problem that. Sometimes the people who still love Proudhon do it on a basis that's as thin and sometimes wrong as those who hate Proudhon. Um, that that what now floats around of Proudhon's legacy, despite the work that some of us have been doing to to sort of complete the picture, is is pretty thin. So whether or not now you are pro or anti proudhon probably depends on whether you're a communist or not. Um, the, the three major phases of what we might call social anarchism, setting aside the real individualists for now, um, are mutualism in the beginnings, communism after say the eighteen eighties, and then for a brief maybe not even a decade or so in the from the late eighteen sixties on, um, what we call anarchist collectivism, which was associated with Bakunin and James James Guillaume and Adam Arschwitzke Quebel and a few other people who are much less well known but were were quite good. And they really the collectivists really thought that they were extending Proudhon's legacy. They certainly were extending the collective side of Proudhon's thought. But Proudhon's thought was focused around what he called the antinomies, a term he borrowed from Kant, but which probably had much more to do with the thought of some of his contemporaries. Uh, and it, it boiled down to the fact that, you know, unlike a, what we think of as, you know, a, a Hegelian dialectic, again, misusing things a bit, you know, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, <clears throat> Proudhon thought that things really revolved around. Oppositions and tensions that never quite resolved, and so if you see the collectivists attempting to extend Krudon's legacy by only emphasizing the collective side and setting aside the individual side, you know you know that it's only a partial extension, that and that it's in fact a partial foreclosure. The same is really true of Tucker and the individualists, who were very interested in what Prudent had to say about the individual, but weren't as able to take on what he had to say about society, about the collective. Uh, In the context of another project, the Bakunin Library publishing project. I've been spending a lot of time reading the collectivists who are as, as forgotten as anyone now really. And you know, I'm a lot more sympathetic now to the thought that at least in some ways they really did take part of Frudon's thought seriously and that they really did extend the the thought dramatically. But there was a lot that they left behind. Um Obviously, exchange some form of property or at least exclusive individual possession is something that, at the very least, could remain when we apply Proudhon's thought to a free society. And for anarchists, for anarchist communists... That's a line that's now drawn firmly enough in the sand that it's pretty hard for the two positions to even have a conversation. Um, And, you know, we know that with figures like Joseph Bajock, as early as the late 1850s, that line could be drawn just that firmly. So it's it's no surprise. Um, I don't know how deep you want to get into you know, the myriad divisions here, but the whole modern anarchist movement really does break down either along lines that emphasize community in the sense of communism or that emphasize individuality, you know, in the way that, say, we get it from Max Stirner, or just a a small number of people who attempt to emphasize both equally, most of whom call themselves mutualist in one way or another, you know, all of whom draw some connection back to Proudhon,
0: it's very interesting. Well, I think we will leave the analysis of modern day anarchism <laughs> there for now because that is an yeah, entirely yeah. other subject that could take hundreds of hours of explication. But, uh, but I think in yeah, drawing <laughs> in drawing this analysis of Proudhon to a close, um, I, I suppose any any other thoughts that you have about Proudhon or his his place not only in in anarchist tradition but really, I guess in the in the broader tradition of philosophy generally, political philosophy.
1: Well. Yeah. I really feel, and I will admit that I am in a fairly small minority at this point, um, that the, the current resurrection, not just of Proudhon, but of an awful lot of the marginalized bits, the, the bits that haven't made it into the established canon, is at least potentially a real opportunity for, for us now, for anarchism in the present Um, not because there's any need to wipe away everything that happened from 1865, even though maybe we dropped the ball there in certain ways, but I think because it remains untapped, particularly for English speakers, in Proudhon, particularly in his mature work in the The history of the application of his ideas uh, in the cooperative movement in collectivism in other aspects of anarchism gives us first an opportunity to kind of reread that history you know, and enrich it in the process, but also I think that. That very narrow notion that the whole anarchist social system can be boiled down to just what I've been calling in, in my writing the anarchic encounter is a is a tool that just about anybody from just about any tradition within the anarchist and libertarian movements could import, could put to use Within their present context, um, I expect, as happened with my own development, that putting that tool to use is likely to shake things up pretty well. But I'm not sure that we don't need some some pretty thorough shaking up now. So, you know, I, I kind of split my days between feeling like I am just right at the center of what's exciting about anarchism and feeling like I am the most marginal man in the world. But, you know, a little of both is true, I think. And I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see more of Proudhon in the future. Um, I I certainly hope we do, because I think that there's some, some very, very useful tools in there.
0: Well, a fascinating conversation about a fascinating figure. And if a lot of this sounds like gobbledygook to the listeners out there who have not read Proudhon yet, uh, well, stay tuned to the Well-Read Anarchist podcast series, where we will be reading through some of his his main works and and getting a taste of his uh, writings directly. So um, absolutely fascinating stuff. And I have, of course, uh, mentioned your your blogspot, libertarian-labyrinth.blogspot.com, which again will be linked in the show notes for this episode. But are there any other resources that you'd like to recommend on Proudhon? In particular,
1: um, there is a there's a mutualism site at mutualism.info, which has some of the more introductory level material, and which I expect I'm actually going to be working on quite a bit more in the near future. Uh, and I think there are some some useful bits there. Uh, I certainly for people who want a taste can recommend the, uh, the AK press anthology property is theft, which Ian McKay put together. If you read that, uh, find my translation of the philosophy of progress online. Uh, It's kind of the missing method chapter. And also just, if you're going to wade into Proudhon, you know, be kind to yourself. Take your time. Uh, it's, it's a long time and conceptually quite a distance from us. And there's a lot there, but uh, it, it takes a little digging.
0: Well, then let's uh, let's get uh, roll up our sleeves and start uh, doing that uh, dirty work, because someone has to do it. Alright, excellent. Well, Sean Patrick Wilbur, it has definitely been a pleasure talking to you, and I certainly hope this will not be your last appearance on the Well-Read Anarchist podcast series. Again, for people who are playing at home you can play along uh, go, go to corbettreport.com and there is a well-read anarchist podcast feed so you can subscribe specifically to that feed or of course if you're subscribed to the general corbett report podcast feed you will uh, sorry the general corbett report feed you will also get the well-read anarchist series uh sean patrick Wilbert, it's been a pr- pleasure talking to you thank you for your time today
1: thank you